You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Well, good morning. Great to be together. Happy Thanksgiving. Merry Christmas. Uh, everything. Uh, this is that time of the year where uh, just transitioning into uh, the final stretch of 2023, and as we do that, we want to do that together as a church, walking through God's Word. We've been in the book of Acts. We're staying in the book of Acts. We'll do something at Christmas. Obviously, the 17th is a Christmas service, as Caleb mentioned, and we'll do something, uh, obviously, Christmas on the 24th. So we will uh, take a pause on the book of Acts uh, at some point in late in December, but uh, for the next few weeks, we will be in Acts. I mentioned to you that I'm not covering every passage um, but I'm going to start slowing down and covering more consistently passage after passage. We didn't spend as much time on the gospel in Jerusalem, but the gospel leaves Jerusalem this week. Uh, and so we are want to be looking at that in Acts chapter 8. So last week, to catch you up, we looked at Acts 6 where a division in the church was averted. Uh, a minority population, the Greek uh, Jews who had converted, uh, their widows were being overlooked by the majority population, which was the Hebrews, uh, Hebrew Jews, and the leaders were all Hebrew Jews. And so uh, what happened was uh, they appointed some people that uh, ensured some, some Greek leaders that ensured the widows were taken care of, and the church all rallied, supported that, and it brought unity and growth to the church. We saw that last week. One of those people that was appointed a leader to ensure that the uh, widows were taken care of on the daily distribution of food was a guy named Stephen. And what happens with Stephen in chapter 7 is uh, that he is sort of arrested on some uh, trumped-up charges. He's framed, and when brought before the religious leaders, he declares the gospel and shows how Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And here's what happens. They execute him. Uh, For proclaiming Christ, he is the first recorded Christian martyr in the Bible. And so he, in chapter 7, dies. And when we get to chapter 8, we find out a character who was involved in the oversight of Stephen's execution. Look at verses 1 to 3. I'm going to read this, and then we will jump into the the, the text we're going to look at today. So verse 1, and Saul, Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So what happens is, the persecution, which is meant to sort of stop the church, uh, causes the spreading of the church. It's sort of like kicking an anthill and everything scatters. I'm not comparing to the first believers to ants. It's just a metaphor, but you get the picture that there is a a kick, a, a persecution by killing a leader. And what happens is they all spread out. And this guy, Saul, who If you know the book of Acts, know he becomes Paul, the primary writer of the New Testament. But at this point, uh, he is a uh, he is opposing the church, and the church spreads 
everywhere. And we just had the story of Stephen, which I summarized in about a minute, and now we get the story of Philip. So I want to read verses 4 through 8, which describe Philip and his mission once the scattering takes place. Verse 4, listen to God's word. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So this section we could call good news for Samaria. Good news for Samaria. God uses a church problem, persecution, to produce church growth, a scattering and a sharing of the gospel. Just like in chapter 6, God used a church problem, which was the neglect of a group of people in the church that was remedied, that was fixed, and then it said the church grew. And so God takes challenges and problems among his people and by the gospel uh, affects us and actually brings good out of our difficulty. Now, this section marks an expansion of the gospel in two ways. The first way is that now we read that there are people who are non-apostles or not one of the seven leaders that took care of the widows that are now spreading the gospel. You'll notice verse 4, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. That is, the believers who were in Jerusalem scattered to all kinds of places, and as they did, they shared the gospel. And when they say preaching, don't think of delivering formal sermons. That's not what's in view there, but more uh, evangelizing, what we might call sharing the gospel. And I think this verse is so important because most of Acts is a series of recording uh, sermons and what happens after those sermons or describing missionary journeys, particularly when we get to Paul, uh, and how, what happens, where they go, what they do. But I hope you know that most people in the New Testament time didn't become a Christian because they heard Paul preach. There are thousands upon thousands of people that become believers. I mean, the first few centuries, the gospel after Christ, the gospel just takes off. And it's not because people heard a preacher. That, that happened. The apostles came into an area, uh, they preached the gospel, and churches were formed to be sure. But it's when they leave or when they scatter here that one neighbor tells another neighbor. I mean, there's letters of the New Testament where an apostle has never been. The letter of Colossians, Paul writes them, but he had never been to Colossae. Someone else spread the gospel there. Or the greatest theological treatise in the whole New Testament, Romans. Paul said, I long to be with you, but he writes this letter to a church he had never been to. But many who heard the gospel and scattered, they took the message and the gospel spread. So you can read the book of Acts and think, well, it's just the apostles or the leaders that are primarily evangelistic. It's just them that really make a difference. But it's not true. It's, it's everyone uh, doing their part in sharing the gospel. When we send Rob uh, out to Anna with a team, we're not sending Rob to be the evangelist to Anna. We're sending a team of people who will move into neighborhoods, who will uh, work in the, in the in environment in the area, whose kids will play in the soccer league there in the area, and they will be the evangelists that take the gospel to folks in that city. Rob will play his part, but we're, we're counting on 
the people of the church to evangelize. And that's exactly what happens in the book of Acts. And so I don't want to skip chapter, uh, verse 4 um, because I think it's so important to say sharing the good news is the privilege and the responsibility of the whole church, not just those who formally declare it or those who were the first witnesses to the resurrection the apostles. Now, there's something else that happens here that's really important as well. It's not just that we get a verse that tells us that many shared the gospel, but the gospel is shared in Samaria, and this is an important marker in the story of Acts. So verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. If you remember back uh, in chapter 1, Jesus gives an outline of what's going to happen with the spread of the gospel. In 1.8, Acts 1.8, he says to his apostles, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so it's this progression that then Luke unfolds throughout the book of Acts. So we've been in Jerusalem so far. And we read earlier that it does spread in Samaria, I'm sorry, in uh, Judea. But now we get the gospel going to Samaria. The message now spreads into what we could call foreign territory. And it's hard to overstate how radical that one verse is. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. Or perhaps more radical is when we see in the next section that they're converted. This is radical because the Jews and the Samaritans were enemies. They were enemies of one another, bitter enemies. The Jews did not like the Samaritans. The Samaritans, in some ways you could say the Samaritan people started ten, uh, ten centuries before this when the, when the two tribes of Israel, I'm sorry, when the, the ten tribes of Israel in the north split off from those in the south and ultimately had their own place of worship and all that. So there's a separation that happens. But later, the people of Samaria, Samaria intermingle and intermarry with non-Jews. By the fourth century, they have their own temple in Mount Gerizim where they say this is the place of worship, not Jerusalem, but Mount Gerizim. And so there are these people that are viewed by the Jews as hybrids. They are racial hybrids because they are intermingled, Jews intermingled with non-Jews, and they are religious hybrids because they believe the Old Testament, they believe the law, they believe the Pentateuch, and yet they have their own alternative system of worship in a different temple altogether. And that's why John tells us in John 4, verse 9, the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. They had no dealings with them. As a matter of fact, they wouldn't even walk through their area. If you were in Galilee and you wanted to get down to Jerusalem, the straight course was to go right through Samaria. But people would go circular around it without even going into Samaria. They wanted to avoid Samaria altogether. They didn't want contact with any Samaritans. Jesus famously traveled right through Samaria. He broke that tradition. He broke that sort of cultural rule, that cultural boundary. He broke it. And he went to Samaria, and he shows up at a well 
and talks to a Samaritan woman in John 4 and begins ministry to the Samaritans there because she believes in Jesus. Uh, She uh, goes and tells her friends and family, and they believe in Jesus as well. But that was a radical thing to do. So radical. As a matter of fact, when Jesus wanted to shock someone, when a religious leader came to him and Jesus told him to love your neighbor, and the religious leader, a lawyer, says, well, who is my neighbor? Jesus shocks him by telling him the story that we call the Good Samaritan. It was unbelievable that Jesus would profile this story about a Samaritan doing the right thing and the Jewish leaders doing the wrong thing and passing by the person who was in need. So it's into this environment, the Samaritans, the despised people that we don't even walk through their town. We have nothing to do with them. It's there that Philip goes and begins in verse 5 to announce the good news and proclaim to them the Christ. He tells them Christ means Messiah. He tells them the Messiah has come. Now, the Samaritans were looking for a Messiah, just as the Jews were, and he says that Messiah has come. Actually, that Messiah visited your area. That Messiah is Jesus, who died and rose for sinners. And Jesus grants him great signs. There's not only the proclamation of the gospel, but there's the demonstration of the gospel as well. Verse 7, unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was much joy in the city. So what happens in the ministry of Jesus? Proclamation and demonstration. The good news of the kingdom is announced. The sick are healed. The demonized are delivered to show the reign of King Jesus. In Acts 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the Jews. And what happens in Acts 2? We see that Everyone is in awe because many miracles are happening among the people of Israel. Now, the same thing is happening in Samaria. The the people are receiving and, and they're being delivered. They're receiving the good news. And it says there is great joy in the city. The gospel is shattering dividing walls. Where there is a separation of people, the gospel gospel tears the barrier down. Jesus does the same thing among the Samaritans that he did among the Jews, and there is much joy for them to hear Jesus. So, good news for the Samaritans. The next section, verses 9 through 13, is good news for a magician, which kind of sounds like a children's book, doesn't it? (laughs) Mikey the magician. Uh, No, it sounds like a kid's book, but it's not. Good news for a magician, verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he, Simon, was amazed. So Luke says, Philip goes into this, uh, you know, place where you're not supposed to go, the Samaritans, and he encounters a notable person among the Samaritans. The guy's name is Simon. He practiced magic, and he Uh, amazed people, it says, verse 9. 
uh, it says that he, uh, that, that he amazed the people, verse 9, uh, saying that he himself was somebody great. So he not only did amazing things, but he announced, I am great, and let them all know that. And they all said, verse 10, this man is the power of God that is called great. So some believe that that means that he was, uh, they believed he was a representative of a God, that he himself uh, represented a God that was called great. Um, so they, whatever it is, they, they thought that he was doing great just as he said. Now, when it says that he is a magician, this is not pick a card, any card. You know, this is not what your nephew did at Thanksgiving uh, showing you card tricks. This is not illusion. This is not sleight of hand. This is not a Vegas show. This is the dark arts is what this guy practices. And this is not the first time we're going to encounter this. There are going to be power encounters between the power of Jesus and the power of darkness in the book of Acts. And so it happens here, and it's going to happen in chapters 13, chapters 16, and chapters 19. We're going to find out about more about magic powers. But uh, this, is, this is how one commentator, Eckhard Schnabel, uh, describes what's going on here. He says, in the ancient world, magic, what today we would call witchcraft, sorcery, or the occult, was based on the view that human beings, gods, demons, and the visible world were all connected in ways that can be influenced by rituals involving incantations and the manipulation of objects. Its purpose was to overcome public or private problems. Usually magic was defensive, harnessing the powers of gods or spirits in order to gain protection against diseases and demons." So sorcerers uh, did these sort of things. They offered a service uh, where they would protect you, and this is obviously very real uh, in our world today, in our country today, and if you travel, you'll find it very real in other cultures as well, and sadly, you'll find it mixed with Christianity uh, in some places, which is not what's going to happen here, but you find that. uh, You find syncretistic religion where there is both the power of Jesus proclaimed and the power of magic. And some of them have been places where that was taught and experienced in other parts of the world. So at any rate, the sorcerer could predict the future, the sorcerer could heal in a positive way, or the sorcerer could protect you from incantations that came from others. It was a source of great income, uh, probably for Simon, and uh, he had all the people of Samaria. It says they all paid attention to him. He had everyone in this area of Samaria under a spell, pun intended. And they are amazed by the divine acts that he is able to do. Now, the people that previously, verse 10, paid attention to him, verse 10, they all paid attention to Simon from the least to the greatest, saying that he was great. Verse 6 tells us, and the crowds with one accord paid attention of what was being said to Philip, the same language. So everybody's blown away by Simon's magic powers, um, and then now Philip comes in uh, preaching the gospel, casting out demons, healing the sick, and everybody is now amazed by him, including Simon. Simon himself, it says, is amazed. So the people believe in Jesus, the people are baptized, men and women, it says, are baptized in verse 12. Verse 13, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. 
Now, I think it's worth noting that little key there. It does say he believed, uh, but it's going to get very interesting in the next section. Did he really believe? Uh, Because it says he was amazed by the miracles that were performed. It's like he was following along after Philip, watching all of these things going on. It, It says that he was amazed by the miracles. It does not say he was amazed by the person of Jesus Christ. It does not say he was amazed by the glory of the Savior. It does not say he was amazed by grace, as we sang this morning. It says he was amazed by the signs and was tagging along with Philip. I think that's a clue to uh, what we're going to read about him because he appears to be more enamored with the miracles than with Jesus. Here's what happens next. The apostles visit this Samaritan revival, we might call it. So there's good news for the Samaritans, good news proclaimed uh, as well to a magician, and then the apostles visit in verses 14 through 25. This is the rest of the section we're going to cover today. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this manner for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, uh, to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages in, uh, many villages of the Samaritans. The book of Acts got some interesting stuff going on, doesn't it? Uh, with this guy, Simon. So the apostles come down, and this is really an unusual passage that we're reading. The apostles come down, and they come to pray that these people who believe in Jesus and have been baptized may receive the Holy Spirit. These people appear to have received Jesus, but not the Holy Spirit. I I remember, and people talk this way sometimes, talk this way today sometimes. I remember one time I was in a church and many, many years ago, actually decades ago, and uh, the kids had gone to youth camp and the kids were back from youth camp and it was testimony night. And you just appreciate the young enthusiasm and the excitement. And uh, so I remember one kid's testimony. This kid gets up and he said, last summer I went to camp and I received Jesus. And you think, that's wonderful. He got converted last summer. And he said, this summer I went to camp and I received the Holy Spirit. And I thought, man, if this guy could go next year and receive the Father, he will have a full trend. I'll sponsor this kid. Let's get him back. Uh, I'll scholarship him so he can get a full Trinitarian faith because he's receiving the triune God, which is one, in segments. And uh, so he was just probably poorly experiencing. What he meant was I got saved last summer, and this summer I was filled and empowered in some way powerfully with the Holy Spirit. But the Bible would tend to say 
Uh, we're not tend to say. The Bible would say he already had the Holy Spirit. This passage, though, is unique because they didn't have the Holy Spirit. And so how do we understand this? I mean, on the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up and says, repent and be baptized and you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit. You'll receive the Holy Spirit is what he says. Or listen to this verse, Romans 8, 9. This is a teaching verse. And in this verse, this is what Paul says. Anyone who does not have the Holy Spirit does not belong to him. Anyone, let me repeat that because I left something out. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So in a, in a teaching portion of Scripture, uh, Paul says, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to Jesus. Peter says, believe and you receive the Holy Spirit. So here's what's going on. This is an interpretive, this is a way to interpret your Bible. Uh, Whenever we're reading a narrative, a story that says something different than teaching passages say in the scripture, what's called didactic passages, teaching passages, you always lean on a teaching passage because narrative passages are often descriptive but not prescriptive. I mean, you can't just read an Old Testament story where something, you know, sort of crazy happens. An axe head is thrown in the water and floats and and then go out and say, I'm going to do that same thing. Because that's descriptive of something. It's not prescribing this is what you are to do. We can learn lessons from narratives. They do teach us. But sometimes if there's a passage of Scripture that is a clear teaching passage that says, if you do not have the Spirit, you're not part of Him, then you need to look at it and go, okay, is there something unique happening in this narrative? And I would say there is something unique happening in this narrative. It's not saying the two-stage process of salvation is normative, but it's saying, I believe, something unique is happening. Well, what is unique happening? Well, people that are outside Uh, Israel are having the same experience that the people of Israel did. People that are a despised group of folks are having the same experience and being incorporated into the church, and that is a big, big issue. That would be hardly believable to the Jews in Jerusalem. That You're telling me the Samaritan, well, Jesus said that was what was going to happen, but it's one thing to hear Jesus say that, and it's another thing to say, you mean I got to go to the same church as a Samaritan? That's unthinkable in my mind. But no, they are equal with us. They believe in Jesus just like us. They've had the same experience we have. They had the apostles with them endorsing, laying hands on them, and seeing the exact same results. In other words, there is a uh, there is the gospel will go to Judea, or Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, the Gentiles, and each one of them are going to have a Pentecost. So the Jewish Pentecost happens in uh, Acts 2. This we could say, I know the text doesn't say it, but we could say this is like the Samaritan Pentecost, that it is verified by the apostles to say these really are Christians. It says in verse uh, 14, they received the word of God. In Acts 2, it says the Jews accepted Peter's message. In chapter 11, Peter's going to be among the Gentiles, and they're going to believe. And when uh, Cornelius and his family, and when 
Peter goes back, they're going to say, tell us the proof. There had to be apostolic proof that these people, the Gentiles in chapter 11, who received by faith, they speak in tongues, the same thing that happened in Acts 2. And it's this sort of demonstration that they really are among the people of God, that, that there is this, this outrolling of a pouring out of the Spirit on the Samaritans, a pouring out of the Spirit on the Gentiles. And get, given their terrible history together, it mattered that the apostles come down, investigate, lay hands on them, and show there is a fellowship between us and them. There is a unity between us and them. This experience gives a sign to the whole church. Yet, Yes, the Samaritans have had the same experience we have. Now, he doesn't say that here, but he says that in chapter 11 among the Gentiles. He said they've had the same experience that we have had. It gives a sign that the Samaritans are real Christians. So it's an unprecedented situation uh, that requires some kind of a unique verification. And while I wouldn't say that salvation is two-stage, you get Jesus and then you get the Holy Spirit, after the Holy Spirit is poured out upon Jews, Gentiles, and Samaritans, it seems like the experience for everyone else has been you receive the Spirit at, at faith, uh, at, at belief. So while I wouldn't say there's two stages, I would say, and we taught this under Acts 2, that there, there is salvation, conversion, regeneration, where you receive the Holy Spirit, and yet there are multiple experiences of the Spirit later in life. There are fillings of the Spirit which embolden us for witness, which give us spiritual gifts, which hopefully in a moment like this empower the preacher, which empower our worship together, the whole service. We, we, we pray to be filled with the Spirit even though we have Him. So what I'm not saying is there's no experiential reality of the Holy Spirit outside of conversion. I believe you receive the Spirit of conversion, but you can be filled again and again and again, and you should be, and we should be asking the Lord for that. I'm just saying that this does not teach, I don't believe, the traditional Pentecostal doctrine, which is you receive Jesus and later you receive uh, sort of the, the Holy Spirit for, for like a second time, and th- that's the big deal is those two stages. Uh, no, I think something's happening very unique here in the history of salvation, and that's why it was important for them to verify that. Well, that's a little bit about that. Um, Simon sees that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands. We don't know what he saw. Maybe he saw what happened in Acts 2 and happens in, in, uh, in Acts 11 with the Gentiles. Maybe he saw people speaking in languages they didn't know spontaneously. It could have been that, but that's presumption. It doesn't say. He just saw something powerful and offers them money. Um, he said, let me buy this power so that I can do the same thing you have done. I mean, he lost his audience. He lost his power over Samaria. These guys have it, but maybe he can buy back the same thing that he had, and then he'll be restored to the position of the great one uh, and uh, that, 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 that sort of thing. Peter tells him that, you know what? You and your money are going to perish because you thought you could buy the power of God. It's a gift. Verse 20, he says that uh, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. This is a gift, a gift. You can't buy it. You can't control it. Verse 21, or can't control him. Verse 21, your heart is not right with God. You better repent. 
To which Simon says, would you pray for me that all that stuff about perishing silver and me perishing doesn't happen? So this is really a bit ambiguous. We don't know if Simon is sincere. I understand the Bible clearly says he believed, but then it says your heart's not right with God. So is he a believer that's a young believer that's confused, that's coming out of, you know, it takes a a, a lifetime uh, to be renewed ultimately with new behavior. So is it that or did he never really believe and he shows his cards by saying, I want to buy the power of God. It just doesn't tell us if he repents here. So we're, we're left without knowing the, the fate of Simon. We don't know, but we do know that he desired something that was very, uh, very offensive to God. The power of God as something he could control rather than something he would receive. So what does this chapter show us? Well, I think it shows, I usually try to read a section of scripture and think there's a single idea. I think there's two primary ideas here. And I don't know that one outweighs the other. I think they're both really clear. One is that the gospel breaks down barriers to all people. This is the gospel going to the outsiders and and them being drawn in and saved. It's not only that the gospel breaks down barriers to all people, but also that the gospel is only effective for those who will submit to Jesus. If you're going to try to control God, you didn't submit to God and you didn't receive the gift. Uh, You are trying to use God rather than to serve God. That's Simon. So both of those ideas seem to be present here, that the gospel breaks down barriers to all people, but it's only effective for those who submit to Christ, sort of receiving his power. You can't buy the power of God. You must submit to the power of God. That's what the passage teaches us. You can't control him. Let me make a couple of points of application here for us. We, first one is this, that we receive God's power, we don't control it. That's what's happening with Simon. Apparently, that's why Luke includes this story, is to teach us that. He thought he could access the power of God like a commodity that he could purchase, but that's wrong. Now, on the surface, we read a passage like this, and most of us in the room a very high percentage of us in the room don't identify with Simon at all. Unless you came out of the occult, and you may have. If you came out of the occult, then maybe you identify with Simon. But if you did not come out of the occult, you're going to look at Simon and say, I, I can't relate to that. I mean, the Simon guy, I am so different than him. You don't see yourself in Simon in any way. And yet, I wonder... I mean, we may not be doing the same thing, but do you ever seek to get God to do for you what you want him to do for you? That's, what, that's the heart of this. It's not primarily about the magic arts. It's about wanting to be in control. That's what it is. Do, do you ever have a situation where you've sort of used God? God will help me out. God, I, you know, it, it, I'll do this if you do that. God, if you will get me out of this, I promise never again to do this. Has anybody ever made that deal uh, with God? It did work for Martin Luther. He got converted, but I would not recommend that. He, he said, if you won't kill me in the storm, I'll serve you. And actually, it kind of was pretty significant, but I don't recommend that at all. You ever try to control circumstances so that you are like God? Did any of that surface over the Thanksgiving holidays where that control thing started rising up in you uh, around your relatives or something like that. You ever try to control circumstance? That's at the root of what's going on here. It's at the root of prosperity theology. 
prosperity theology is basically paganism. It's if I confess this thing, God, it may even be a Bible verse, but if I confess this, God must act in response to my faith and he must do this. Uh, If I give this much, he must give that much. If I obey, he must. Prosperity theology is a paganism that works just like uh, what Simon is doing here. Uh, I give you my money, you give me God's power. And so while you may say, well, I don't, do, I don't do magic arts, I'm not from the occult, I don't do prosperity theology, I can't stand that stuff, I don't do that, and yet I think this still hits home at some level for most of us. We may not consciously think of, I want to control God, but that mindset shows up when we don't get what we want, when things don't go as planned. When our desires aren't answered, it goes like this. Why did this happen when I did this? I mean, I did this. Why did that happen? That's how it goes. How could I get that disease? I have stewarded this vessel, this temple. I've taken care of my body. How did I get that? That's how we think. Why is my spouse not more loving? I've done everything I could do to love her, to love him. Why aren't they this way? I did everything the Bible says. I went and got counseling and did all my counselor says. Why aren't they? If I do this, God should make them do that. That's how it works, right? Uh, Why don't I have more money? I give regularly. My parents taught me to tithe off my allowance. And I've tithed off every paycheck I ever got. So God should be caring and blessing for all my needs. Why is that not happening? I pay my tithe. God blesses me. That's how the Bible says it's supposed to work. Why is my child not following Christ? I raised him. I raised her to know Christ. I took them to church. I did family devotions. I taught them the Bible. I did my part. Why didn't God do his part? I give you money. You give me the power of God. Simony, which historically is the term which means trying to buy a church office, which was in the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, they talked about simony, try to buy an office. We don't try to buy an office, but we do try to, through our behavior, manipulate the sovereign God of the universe. Where we take reap what you sow is a general principle of the Bible. But in every instance, we act as if we sow in total righteousness so that God owes us. There's only one that sowed in total righteousness. That's the Lord Jesus and gave his life for us. But we cannot manipulate God. You you cannot say, I'm going to have a quiet time every day this week, so this is what I expect my children to do in return. If I have a quiet time, they're not going to wake up in the middle of the night. They're not going to fight amongst themselves as little kids. No, it doesn't work that way. You have your quiet time, it's very likely they're going to fight more. The quiet time is your dependence on God to show you you need him and lean on him during all those difficult situations. Your giving is for the glory of God. What a privilege to give for what he has given me. It is a great honor to give. It is not you twisting God's arm because he owes you because you did this. You don't put your coin in the vending machine and out comes the selection G3, Lay's Potato Chips. It doesn't work like that. That's karma. That's not grace. 
And we believe in grace. We believe that God is sovereign. We come to him and we submit to his power. Simon, what Simon has done is evil because he is not submitting to the sovereign power of God who is good. He's trying to control the power of God for his own ends. He wants to rule. He wants God to serve him. He wants God to fulfill his will. And I know something about that. And you do too. It's easy to use God rather than to submit to God. But it's a pagan notion. We receive his power and submit to his power. We don't direct his power for our purposes. And like Job, we say, God is glorious. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Not you owe me. Very different than what Job says. Ajit Fernando, who I've quoted a few times, he's a Sri Lankan uh, leader, Christian leader. He says, Peter's point is that this is a gift that God gives sovereignly. We human beings cannot manipulate him into giving us what we desire. That is what happens in Simon's magic kingdom, not in God's righteous kingdom. I'm quoting him. That wasn't a dig at Disney, by the way. I'm not, I'm not doing... <laughs> not doing culture war here, uh, that's not, uh, he says, that's Simon's magic kingdom, that's not God's righteous kingdom. That is the way paganism works. I offer a sacrifice, the gods meet my need. Christianity is God offers a sacrifice in Jesus Christ, and if you receive that, you receive eternal life, and it's more glorious than anything you can imagine, and it may be bumpy along the way, but he will always, until, until eternity, but he will always be with you. He will never leave or forsake you, and he will take your most difficult, grievous challenges, and he will use them for his glory and for your good. So, we submit to God's power. We don't use him. And secondly, and I'm going to be super brief on this, I just think we can't ignore the point that Jesus saves people different than me and calls us to be family together. Man, some people are going to end up in a church together like the Samaritans and the Jews. They'd be in the same church. Oh, then you're going to bring some Gentiles in. They call Gentiles dogs. And they're going to be in, we're going to all be in the same church together. And my parents told me not to like you. And your parents told me never to go out with or never be with somebody like me. And their parents said, you're both terrible. And, you know, and here we all are in church together. And so our theme this year, learning to love cross-culturally, is not some foreign concept. We said, oh, that'd be nice to take a modern issue and put it on the Bible. And it is thick in the Bible. And it's at the heart of why we get the Samaritans and the Gentiles, because God's wanting us to get. Everybody didn't get along. It's why we get Jesus reaching the woman at the well and, and his disciples saying, what's he doing? Because people did not expect that. And the gospel changes our hearts to love people that were enemies or our parents told us they were to be our enemies or our grandparents told us they were to be our enemies and now we love them. You know what's amazing about this passage is that Peter and John is there. John is there. John is there. Go back and read Luke 9. John's walking by a Samaritan city that rejects Jesus and John says, let's call fire down and burn and destroy every one of them. To hell with all the Samaritans is what he says. Let's kill them. I despise them. Let them perish. Send fire down and kill them. And now he's here celebrating that we're together in Jesus. 
That's the power of the gospel. John, the one who says, judge them. Now John is the one saying, embrace them. And by the way, after this happens, we're going to preach the gospel in many villages among the Samaritans, is what he says. Isn't that powerful that John has that change of heart? And John wants that for every one of us because we all have natural biases towards certain people. And God wants to shatter the walls that divide us. Sometimes the walls that divide us in our hearts, they're, sometimes they're low little fences. And sometimes they're giant brick walls that we can't even see over or see around that divide us from someone we've prejudged or have a, a problem with or that type of a person, those people over there. We all have them. There may be certain groups of lost people. There may be certain people with certain political agendas that you despise. There may be someone of a race that mistreated you at some time in your life. But you look and you have a judgment against them. And in the gospel, those little fences and those big walls, they're all destroyed. And the person that you would have called down judgment on, the, the nation, the city, the group of people, uh, those people over there with that agenda that are opposed me, uh, now you want to embrace them and say, receive Jesus, the Lord. That's what happens in this passage. Enemies become friends when the gospel tears down the wall between Jew and Samaritan. Now we're not walking around. We're walking right through into your villages and telling you good news, welcoming us, welcoming you to be with us in the same family. We're going to close with communion today, just recognizing this good news, that we're submitted to the power of God. The power of God is outside of us. It is the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, it is the resurrected king who's poured out his spirit on us. So communion tells us every week that the power of God exists outside of us, and he has used it for our good uh, and for his glory. And it also tells us that people that used to be enemies are now in the same family. It says that those people in my own sin before, you know, in my own sin previously, I would have pointed my finger and judged. I would have looked down upon. I would have been angry and bitter towards because they mistreated me. Whatever it is, that in Jesus, it means that we come together and we say we're family. Jew, Samaritan, Gentile, that's their context. Our context is maybe different, but all kinds of people. We are family together in Christ. So we're going to receive with that in mind. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.